Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real. Grateful to have you with us today. Today, we're going to dissect a talk that was recently uh, done over at uh, the BYU. You can find it on the BYU Speeches website. It is titled, Become a Seeker, The Way, the Truth, and the Life by Michael A. Goodman. And and I want to make it crystal clear here at the beginning that I thought the talk, compared to what we have had said and stated within Mormonism, is is a gem. It is a wonderful talk. It is absolutely one that just pushes us just a little further to where we need to get to. That said, I also saw lots of flaws in the talk, and I'm not I'm not being critical of Michael Goodman himself, but rather the culture of Mormonism that puts these ideas out there, and then Michael just did a great job of taking them and putting them into a talk. Again, I think his talk was great. I think his talk uh, moved the ball a little bit, um, and I applaud him for that. I truly do. And, and actually really enjoyed listening to the talk. But there were several points that just need to be spoken about. And so we'll turn the time over to let him start the talk and I'll just, I'll just stop him every so often and share my two cents. Again, you can find the talk in its full entirety at BYU Speeches. That is speeches.byu.edu. And then you just have to look for a recent talk there by Michael A. Goodman titled Become a Seeker. The way, the truth, and the life. And so now we'll go to that talk. Good morning, brothers and sisters. I see many friends, and family, and wonderful students. And it humbles me to be with you today. I believe in truth and advertising. What I have to share is far more important than I am capable. Those of us who teach the gospel full-time realize soon that we're just not good enough. But as with you, I know that with the Lord's help, I can do what need be done. I pray for that help for us all as we spend the next few minutes together. There is power in truth. The Savior taught that the truth shall make you free. In theory, we've all come to BYU in search of truth. I like the idea here that he starts off that students, if if at least for one reason, are at BYU to be truth seekers. I realize there are many other possible motives, from career preparation to that mystery called marriage preparation. Much of my career is spent helping my students learn how to date, court, and marry well. I was tempted to speak on those issues today, but decided on another issue I am passionate about. 30 minutes will not allow a full exploration, but it will allow an introduction. I will be teaching a four-day version of this at Education Week in August, this August for any who are gluttons for punishment and would like more detail. We live in a world filled with differing views, opinions, and philosophies. Never have we had more access to information. Our task is to decide what is true and what is false. On some issues, that decision is not so crucial, such as whether Co- Café Rio or Costa Vida is best. For some, that may be crucial. Other issues are fraught with immense, at times even eternal, consequences. For example, 
My dear friend Daniel Judd and I chaired the committee which created the new eternal family cornerstone class in religious education. I don't have to work hard to convince my single students of the importance of knowing how to find an eternal companion. Understanding the vast consequences of that decision, most are strongly motivated to understand truth. In fact, many are terrified that they don't know and can't know that truth. The 2002 BYU study asked students how they would know they had found the one they wanted. Most gave a few possible answers, but a few, a full 11% simply answered, I don't know, with men being almost twice as likely to answer that way. In humility, it is wise for all of us to acknowledge our imperfection in determining truth. None of us has all the answers, least of all me. President Uchtdorf explained, it seems to be part of our nature as human beings to make assumptions about people, politics, and piety based on our incomplete and often misleading experience. An example I often use in my eternal family class is of a husband observing his wife turning back and forth in front of the mirror. Since her birthday was not far off, he asked her what she'd like for her birthday. Still looking in the middle in the mirror, she replied, I'd like to be six again. Well, on the morning of his, her birthday, he rose up early, made her a big bowl of Lucky Charms, and then took her to Six Flags theme park. After five hours enjoying every ride, he took her to McDonald's, where he ordered her a Happy Meal with extra fries and a chocolate shake. Then it was off to the movies with popcorn and soda and candy. They finally wobbled home, and with a big smile, he asked, Well, dear, what was it like being six again? Her eyes slowly opened, and her expression suddenly changed. I meant my dress size. And here I have to say I really like the fact that he's talking about false assumptions and that often on our desire to know truth or learn truth, that that search can be confounded by the assumptions we make in the carrying out of our activities based on those assumptions. So are we hopeless? Are we unable to know truth? Of course we can know truth. Heavenly Father has not sent us here without revealing the principles and practices we need to recognize and follow truth. And yet for many, even within the church, there appears to be a crisis of confidence in our ability to know truth. We see the same scenario play out over and over again. A friend or loved one comes upon information which seems to contradict what they thought they knew. They investigate further and find out that their past understanding really was flawed. Church history turns out to be far more complex than the basic Sunday school narrative. Church leaders, past and present, turn out to be mere mortals indeed. The unfairness of life challenges our understanding of the results of righteous living. And the list goes on. Have you experienced this? Has someone you loved experienced it? I guess there's not a person here who has not been touched by such circumstances. You may not have personally experienced such a crisis, but each of us must continue to grow in light and truth. What are we to do? How do we make it through such a crisis and how do we help those we love? When such questions arise, and they will arise for all of us, how we approach it will have almost as much impact on the outcome as will the truthfulness of the issue we are grappling. And the same principles apply for us all. When questions and doubts arise, it is easy to feel vulnerable. We may feel like our whole world is crashing down. Finding our understanding of one issue as an error can lead us to doubt everything else we thought. With wounded hearts, some people come to the conclusion that they have been purposefully deceived, that they've been lied to. For some, such feelings of betrayal are harder than the historical or doctrinal issue that began the crisis. My heart hurts for those who feel this way. The feeling is real, even if the purposeful deception is not. Two things. One, he subtly changes the phrase faith crisis to a crisis of confidence. I think that's a softer way to say it, and I think it leaves a lot more potential 
on the table. The second thing that I want to say thank you for is, is that you validated those who feel betrayed and who feel doubts. Here he takes, he takes a moment to express that even if the deceit is real or not, the feelings absolutely are. And I found that to be empathetic. And, and for those who are struggling to open up some safe space where he can be trusted to reach them. Others faced with such a crisis may begin to question the possibility of even knowing truth. Since their past efforts to know truth have seemed to prove faulty, they question whether their current efforts are also destined to fail. Though, though very slight, he seems to make a subtle effort here to validate that the original truth-seeking is what led to doubts of the restoration. It does not have to be this way. It should not be this way. There is a better way. We and our loved ones can approach these moments in a way that leaves us more, not less, confident in our ability to know truth. If we face our questions with courage and integrity, our knowledge can continue to expand and our faith can continue to be strengthened. So I felt like it was really good up to this point. And then from here on out, there's just things that I'm struggling with. He mentions courage and integrity. And my question is, does does that courage and integrity only lead one back to the church in the restoration? And if, and if so, isn't this faulty in that you just acknowledged that the truth-seeking prior led to the doubts? In other words, one of the things we as Mormons do is say that if someone practices a certain formula, it will obviously strengthen their faith and lead them back into belief of the restoration. And I just don't feel like that's the only valid option on the table for really good people who are seeking divine help in sorting out this crisis of confidence. President Hunter made a promise I'd like to echo today. Quote, these doubts can be resolved if those who doubt have an honest desire to know the truth by exercising moral, spiritual, and mental effort. They can emerge from the conflict into a firmer, stronger, and larger faith because of the struggle. They have gone from a simple trusting faith through doubt and conflict into a solid, substantial faith which ripens into testimony. So, how do we help ourselves or our loved ones in our combined quest for three crucial steps are one, become a seeker. Do not fear questions. Two, love and respect all, regardless of whether we agree with their conclusions. And three, learn and share the vital principles and practices for knowing truth. We must become seekers. Far too many of us fear questions. We have nothing to fear. President Uchtdorf explained, my dear young friends, you are, we are a question asking people because we know that inquiry leads to truth. These restoration scriptures state that we are commanded to seek. The scriptures are replete with those who went from darkness to light through seeking. Enoch, Abraham, Paul, Alma, Joseph Smith, even Christ grew from grace to grace through seeking for and adhering to truth. This idea that inquiry leads to truth, I'm all for that. I absolutely believe that critical thinking, uh, being studious about issues, trying to get to the bottom of things, fact gathering, all of those things, inquiry, and spiritual inquiry too, prayer and pondering and fasting and praying, all of those things on there, that inquiry does lead to truth. The issue is that when people like this give talks, there's this unsaid thing, this elephant in the room that no one's talking about 
which is truth meaning truth in our church as the true church and truth as in a stronger belief in the restoration and in the truth claims of the church. And I just don't think that bears out. And he uses Jesus as an example, but as Jesus grows grace to grace and truth to truth, the Savior seems to find himself more and more in conflict with the religious leaders of his faith institution. And so I don't think it's really fair to use Christ as the example. And I'm with you if you're going to say that inquiry leads you to truth without any baggage of what that means. And if you're going to completely honor those whose belief becomes less literal or those who even lose belief altogether in the restoration as they do a a deep, honest, studious, religious inquiry to try and discover that truth. As we ask questions, we must avoid the fate of a character in C.S. Lewis's classic book, The Great Divorce. Great book. This character became so driven by questions and questioning that he ceased to believe in the possibility of answers. That character was counseled once you were a child, once you knew what inquiry was for. There was a time when you asked questions because you wanted answers and were glad we become that child again. Even great advice. The scriptures command us to seek and warn us not to be, quote, ever learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. That is as bad as its evil twin, quote, never learning, but always believing we know the truth. We must become seekers. We must encourage learning. We must hunger and thirst after righteousness, which just happens to be another name for truth and for Jesus Christ himself. One important clarification. Many people use the words questioning and doubting synonymously. I believe this leads to serious epistemological confusion. It's a big word. Epistemology refers to how we know what we know. I'll use this word several times today. Conflating doubt with asking questions leads people to value doubt as if it were itself a virtue. You hear sayings like, if a person has never doubted, they've never thought. But doubt and questioning are not the same thing. Doubt is part of the belief spectrum, which, as shown by this slide, ranges from disbelief through belief. Where do questions fit on this spectrum? Can you not see that questions can occur at any point along the way? So what is the role of doubt? Is it evil? Is it good? Doubt in many ways is neither moral or immoral, but rather amoral. I actually like this. I like this idea that doubt is neither negative nor positive. That doubt is just doubt. And and then the idea that it's just the word he uses, which is amoral. It's not immoral. It's not moral. It's just doubt. Doubt can be good. It can be bad. And he's about to explain how. As this slide illustrates, if the object of our doubt is false, such as believing in prophetic infallibility, that if any human error exists, that person's not a prophet. Well, doubting that falsehood leads to good outcomes. However... If the object of our doubt is true, such as God commanding us to give heed to the words of his servants, the prophets, then doubting that truth leads to bad outcomes. One thing is for sure, doubt has consequences. Bruce C. Hafen quoted the famous American philosopher William James and explained, doubt and belief and doubt are living attitudes and involve conduct on our part. If I doubt that you are worthy of my confidence, I keep you uninformed of my secrets, just as if you were unworthy of the same. If I doubt the need of insuring my house, I leave the house uninsured as much as if I believe there were no need. 
There are inevitable occasions in life when not to be for is to be practical. So, should we never doubt? Of course not. There are too many false ideas to safely navigate through life without doubt. But doubt must never be seen as a final destination or proof of our intellectual honesty. As Elder John A. Witso explained, doubt therefore can be and should be only a temporary condition. In other words, doubt must never itself be an end. Doubt as an objective of life is an intellectual and spiritual offense. Doubt, unless transmuted into inquiry, has no value or worth. Of itself, it has never lifted a brick, driven a nail, or turned. Again, I, I like this, that doubt should never be an end, that that doubt of itself has never moved forward to do anything, as he says, lift a furrow. This idea that it should only be a temporary condition and that doubt should lead to inquiry. I'm all for that. And I, and I feel good about that. I feel like, like doubt in and of itself is just, uh, yeah, I doubt something. It's what you do next. Let's prove this. Let's go find out more. Let's see if we can get to the bottom of it. Those are things that we should be doing with our doubts. Here's where I disagree. And I'll try to frame this as faithfully as I can. When I look at the evidence, so I've, my testimony is very much split into two different parts. I'm very good at compartmentalizing my beliefs and my feelings. So intellectually, I think the evidence is stacked very strongly against the church being what it claims to be. And I leave room in my head that perhaps the church is true. It's just not true in the way it's defined itself, that it's true in a whole nother kind of way. And while I intellectually can't make it work and I intellectually see the church as not being true, that the evidence is just for me, me personally, but also I recognize for thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of others, that the evidence is just too strong against the church, that when you dive into the history, the theology, the facts, the things we can kind of add up, the multiple data points, on so many issues, the faithful answer is, is so implausible or barely plausible that when you add all these data points together, it just seems, it just seems like it, it can't be what it claims to be. But I also have a testimony within my heart too, where I hope, I hope it's true. Like I realize this all doesn't add up, but I'm hoping it's true. And like I said, I put that together by saying it's probably, you know, if it's true, it's true in a way that's different than the way that it defined itself. And the reason I preface it with all that garble, is that when you recognize as a truth seeker who's diving into the information and you happen to be one of those people who says the information is just stacked so strongly against the church. Yeah, there's evidence for the church. Don't get me wrong. And I think every person who who dives into this information and comes out on the side that the evidence is stacked against the church also acknowledges that there are some data points that testify of the truthfulness of the church. But in my mind, it's like 10 to 1 against and when the data points get to be that strong, when there's that much cognitive dissonance between what you want to believe and where the information is taking you, you only the only choice you have to stay in the church at that point is to hold on to your doubts. Not the doubts that it's false. You've already pretty much reached that conclusion. Rather, you're doing what Elder Uchtdorf challenged you to do and you're doubting your doubts. But those are doubts too. Those aren't faithful they didn't do anything. They don't lift a furrow. 
They're just doubts. But they're doubts about your your intellectual evidence that you see stacked up against the church. You're saying, look, man, it's uh, 99.9% chance this isn't true, but I'm going to cling to that point one, and that point one is doubting my doubts. And so if you're telling me doubt can never be an end, then what I'm telling you is that you're going to cause lots of people to leave the church if they can't hang on to their doubt. Their doubt is the only thing that's keeping them in. And when you recognize that that doubt is the only thing they're staying in for, then when you recognize that, I hope that you say, wow, I didn't think of it that way before. I need to back off and I need to give these people their doubts. Because if you really want them in the church, there's no other choice. Now you can say, look, doubt is not an end. Go, go seek truth. Go do some inquiry. Go seek out revelation, which you'll get to in a second. But I'm telling you, for a chunk of people in a crisis of confidence, as you say it, that inquiry is leading them out the door, not in. And so if you truly value them staying, even with just a glimmer of hope, then they're going to have to carry their doubts with them. It may be for this reason that the scriptures never, not once, speak of doubt as a positive. As this slide illustrates, the counsel to doubt, the counsel against doubt, excuse me, was not given to create guilt, but to give guidance. God is trying to help us escape the negative consequences that come from doubting truth. We should never feel guilty or make others feel guilty for having doubts. Please don't. But as the Savior encourages us, we should seek to answer our questions and then act on those answers and not wallow in our insurance. Hence, though we should not villainize those who have questions or concerns, we should not lionize doubt either. Elder Ballard clearly taught, when someone comes to you with a question or concern, please don't brush the question off. Do not tell him or her not to worry about the question. Please do not doubt the person's dedication to the Lord's work. Instead, help the person find the answers to their question. Like, like I totally love your empathy here. I, I love that that you are asking us not to add shame or guilt onto those who have doubts. But I'm telling you that when you teach that the Savior looked at doubt as a negative thing, and when you're telling us doubt is not an end, then what you're actually doing is adding shame and guilt for hanging on to the one piece of the pie that's keeping us in the church. You see, if I let go of all my doubts, then then truth-seeking and moving some direction, like not staying here in this island of doubt, I got to jump off and swim somewhere, then I'm telling you the data tells me that I have to go and I don't want to go. So you're going to have to find a way to let me and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other Latter-day Saints hold on to our doubts until we can get the good ship Zion turned around, until we can present a theology, a history, that leaves space for critical thought, that leaves space for people to disagree, that leaves space for less literal belief, that leaves space for a multitude of perspectives and leaves a safe space to talk about them. Until then, my only choice is to hang on to my doubts. Otherwise, I have to go. And until active believing Latter-day Saints can grasp that that's the challenge that the person in a crisis of confidence has then you're constantly talking over me. And in turn, you are adding on shame and guilt. There is no place for condescension or judgmentalism. If we would be of help, if we would have the right to share in another person's journey, 
We must respect them. We must see their goodness and value their insights and integrity, even as we may not always agree with their conclusions. It's okay. They may not always agree with our conclusions, yet we also hope they will love, value, and respect us. Again, just uh, another nice little bit of empathy there, that it's okay for us to arrive at different conclusions and that there's a need to respect each other. Heavenly Father has given us every tool needed to discover and live by truth, both temporal and spiritual. I'd like to spend the remainder of our time today discussing three ways of knowing truth. At the risk of sounding cliche, I'm going to liken these methods to the legs of a stool. A one-legged stool can serve a purpose, but will be much less stable than a stool with more legs. A two-legged stool will be more stable, but still be fairly easy to topple. But a three-legged stool provides solid stability. The three methods methods I want to speak on today are, one, using our best thinking, logic, and reason. Two, learning from our lived experiences, sometimes called utilitarianism or pragmatism. And three, revelation, which I will work hard to explain is a relational concept. This is crucial. It's the main point I want to get across. The ordering is not random. I will try to show how each method builds on the other and leads to capital T truth itself. Our best thinking. Blind faith has no productive role in the acquisition of truth. The Lord requires us to use not only our hearts, but our minds in seeking truth. Both faith and knowledge are dependent on evidence of things not seen, to quote Paul. Peter counsels us to always be ready to answer for the reason of our hope. Alma admonishes us to experiment on the word. A clear allusion to seeking evidence. The Lord promised that he would witness to both our mind and our heart. Clearly, God requires us to think, reason, and weigh evidence. Love the the point here that blind faith is bad. That we need to think and reason and weigh evidence to arrive at the truth. I I think he's here talking to those in the box. Those who just go along with a blind faith, who just take everything for granted, he is counseling them to use their minds. That they need to be thinking and reasoning and weighing evidence, and he's using scriptural support, scriptural evidence to support such. Joseph Smith taught, quote, The things of God are of deep import, and time and experience and careful and ponderous and solemn thoughts can only find them. Thy mind, O man, if thou wilt lead a soul unto salvation, must stretch as high as the utmost heavens and search into and contemplate the darkest abyss, God expanse of eternity. Such mind-stretching effort, far from being discouraged, is required if we would know the things of God. But our best reasoning will not be enough. Because of this, many who begin to doubt stall in their search for truth. We cannot simply reason our way to ultimate truth. If we refuse to exercise the faith sufficient to add the other two necessary ingredients for knowing truth, that is, sincerely acting on what we want to know the truth of, and seeking revelation from the source of all truth, we will likely be stuck, quote, ever learning but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Fearing that we are deceiving ourselves or maybe being deceived, we may cease to exercise the faith necessary to act so that we can receive the very evidence we seek. So I, I kind of understand this, right? I mean, there's this idea, he uses the scripture that ever learning but never coming to the truth. But this this is circular reasoning that that as one drifts away or has questions that don't end with the same continued faith that a believer has then he obviously isn't seeking truth in the right way 
You see, the trouble is that believing Mormons use this philosophy against doubting Mormons. Evangelicals use it against believing Mormons. Jehovah Witnesses use it against Christians. And essentially every religious group that has truth claims or disagrees with those different with them uses this same idea, this same argument. It it simply is circular reasoning and it's one, one group uses against another group when that group isn't coming on board with the truth claims of the first group. And and frankly, it bothers the heck out of me because I've spent tons of time in prayer. I've spent tons of time in, in reasoning. I've spent tons of time in testing experiences. And, and what I find is not that Mormonism is the one true path that all people should be on, but rather that it's one path that God is using to reach one section of his children in order to inspire, uplift, and encourage them onward. We become like a chef who purchases all the ingredients for a master meal, but refuses to prepare and eat the food. Such a chef will never know the possible results of their effort. They often believe that the process is flawed, when in reality they are only doing a portion of what needs to be done to reap the rewards they see. You see, logical argument and sound reasoning, important as it is, were never intended to be sufficient to know truth. This idea that logical argument and sound reasoning, reasoning, while important, were never meant to be sufficient to discern truth. You see, this seems like another circular argument, another circular type of circular reasoning that's used by every religious group where the evidence is stronger against it than for it. That's the only time this argument comes in. When once someone says, man, go read the book, study the data, Explore all the facts and the history, but unless, unless you seek out God and get the answer that leads you back to the church, then, then you're just not, I mean, it's just not sufficient. It's just not good enough. It's not really a, enough stuff to do. And, and I'm telling you, when it comes to some things in the church, I can tell that just by the data that some things are not what they're claimed to be. And when you write that off as that's not sufficient. I mean, I know you're telling me you read a bunch of books and you learned a bunch of facts and you, you checked out the timeline, you understand all the data points and you're saying that that doesn't mesh. Well, I'm just telling you, you haven't used faith. You haven't used revelation because what you're doing is not sufficient. It's what every religious group uses when the evidence is stronger against them than for them. Mormons aren't the only ones who do this, but they do provide the ground upon which such knowledge can grow. Elder Neil A. Maxwell regularly quoted Austin Farrar's statement regarding C.S. Lewis. Quote, Though argument does not create conviction, lack of it destroys belief. What seems to be proved may not be embraced, but what no one shows the ability to defend is quickly abandoned. Rational argument does not create belief, but it maintains a climate in which belief may flourish. Sound reasoning can not only lead to faith, but can also help us avoid many of the sincerely believed but unsound arguments which cause people to doubt. We must learn to reason more soundly. Whether that reason takes the form of authoritarianism, rationalism, or empiricism, or any other cognitive epistemology, that support can provide the scaffolding on which to build a living, breathing faith and come to a correct understanding of it. He's going to do a little bit of a bait and switch here. And, and I don't mean this in a bad way. I, I think he's setting up kind of one paradigm and then recognizing that that paradigm has its limits. But he talks, he's going to go into detail here about authoritarianism, rationalism, empiricism. But at first he talks about these as, as productive. These are ways in which 
all of us encounter the world and and I'll I'll let him define those but we we should be pretty simple here that authoritarianism is one who places its trust in the authorities right rationalism is just being like rational like based on what we already know and how the world works like trying to fit the information into that and empiricism is this idea that that certain methods certain interpretations will help us figure out what truth is but but those have its limits as well but he says that we need to use one of these that, that whatever one of these we take, or maybe even a different one outside of these three, we need to take some type of paradigm that we then go out and try to learn truth in, but then recognizing that each of these have their limits. Besides the obvious challenges, there are numerous cognitive challenges to which keep our best thinking from being sufficient alone. For example, authoritarianism is only as dependable as the expert we are relying on. Rationalism being rational simply tells us that what we are learning agrees with what the premises of what we already believe in. Add to this the other challenges of confirmation bias, and rationalism cannot be the sole means of determining. Empiricism, as with its cousins, statistical or scientific empiricism, is only as reliable as our methods and our interpretations are. None of this negates the necessity and profitability of using our best thinking. It simply, simply helps us see there are limits to what we can claim based solely on reason and logic. Perhaps an example would help clarify. Understanding our history provides crucial context but with which to understand God's word among his children. But as mentioned above, our history is far more nuanced than the summaries contained in most of our curriculum. With the subjectivity of historical recorders and reporters and the vast differences in the quality of historical sources, it requires our best thinking to interpret and comprehend that history. Bruce C. Hafen, Elder Bruce C. Hafen, once explained that most historical evidence would never be allowed in a modern court of law because it's near impossible to verify its accuracy. If we wouldn't want to be judged on the basis of such weak and biased evidence, why do we feel it is sufficient to definitively judge others? Two parts here. The, the first one is that he admits that our history is much more nuanced and messy than our manuals painted it. And so for that, I give him credit. Like, let's, let, that's great. Let's validate that, that, that our history, that we painted a simple narrative. We wanted our members to, to grasp a simple narrative. And now the information's on the table and it's a lot more messy than we led people on to believe. But then he claims that recorded history would not hold up in a court of law. He tries to deflect that our history is incapable of allowing us to draw conclusions. To this extent, I think on some level, this isn't quite accurate. Any witness in a court of law is stating what they saw or heard or perceived happening. People who are writing down historical, the recorders, for instance, that he mentions, are are simply stating their perspective, what they saw, what transpired in their own view. It's no different than a witness in a courtroom. He tries to deflect that our history is incapable of allowing us to draw conclusions and I agree that in a small way this is true, that often there are issues within church history that have evidence going both ways, and the facts themselves don't give us room to draw an absolute conclusion. But the trouble comes in when the exponential amount of data points are are, are looked at. Like, like we look at all these things and we say, okay, out of every hundred issues, 95 of them have the church having the less plausible answer and sometimes it seems implausible 
And when this exponential amount of data points, when they point in certain directions, then we begin to grasp that things are not quite as they should be. And I'm simply saying that any one data point, yeah, whatever, let's make some mental gymnastics, let's set it aside and let's keep the faith and move on. But when you have hundreds and hundreds of data points that show that the church has the weaker side of the argument and something is is a is skewed, then I think that's absolutely a valid way to try and gather in evidence and to create your own conclusions and perspective. But even supposing we had a completely accurate and bias-free history, which is silly, of course we don't, we would still be fairly limited in the conclusions we could draw regarding much of what is most important. History may be able to show the possibility, and in some cases, the plausibility of an event, but rarely its inevitability. For example, what can we really know about Jesus Christ from a purely historical point? Some even question whether there was a Jesus Christ based solely on the historical record, let alone the reality of his miraculous birth the details of his ministry, the truth of his teachings, the miracles he performed, or most of all, his atonement and triumphant resurrection. The same can be said regarding a historical study of his God's servants. History can give us valuable context, but history alone cannot confirm the Savior's appearance to Paul or to Joseph Smith. History has value, especially if we learn some basic yet essential principles of historical analysis. We simply have to be careful not to ask of it, history, more than it can lived experience. I believe a careful reading of Alma 32 helps us understand that the experiment Alma recommends involves much more than simply thinking about what we're trying to prove true. Heavenly Father is not interested in turning his children into bright, philosophically sophisticated adults who value thinking above being. We were not sent here to simply gain a cognitive knowledge of truth, but rather to live by truth to become as he, God, is. For this reason, the second means of discovering truth, lived experience, which philosophically may be referred to as utilitarianism or pragmatism, seems perfectly defined and designed to augment and deepen what we can learn through our best thing. Hopefully I can kind of encapsulate what I'm thinking here, but he's talking about lived experiences. And, and he seems to indicate that the way to test truth is to experiment on principles. Alma, for instance, in chapter 32, experimenting on his word. I agree. I agree that, that experience should play a large part in, in how we make decisions on what are best for us or healthiest for us or true for us. But a principle being true doesn't mean that the church espousing that principle is true. Only that such a church teaches a true principle. By the same standard, we also see the church espouses and teaches harmful and damaging principles, too. And hence, if we used lived experience to determine if the church is true or not, we must also weigh all the bad. He he also seems to make a hint of acknowledging that more important than the truth, capital T, of whether the church is true or not, is whether its principles bear fruit and make one full of joy. He makes this comment in there about... That God doesn't want us just to spend our time, you know, racking through these ideas on a mental level, but rather that we have to begin at some point to live the gospel in our heart. And I think, I think what he's saying, and he may not even know this or not, but I think what he's saying is that at some point, whether the church is true or not doesn't matter. So many people, including myself, spend so much emotional and mental capital digging and diving and 
going over this stuff and tossing these things with other things and trying to get to the bottom of it, figure out where all these pieces fit. And we spend so much time and energy making this an intellectual exercise that we never get to the part where we set that aside and we're just living the gospel. And and I agree to some extent that's exactly where I'm at. I spend day in and day out making this a mental exercise, trying to get to the bottom of Mormonism. I need so bad to find every last piece. And I'm not, I'm, trust me when I say this, I'm past being, um, being full of tension and angst over whether it's true or not. I don't feel that anymore. I've, I've come to recognize that ultimate truth of how all this stuff lines up and works out, I can't get to the bottom of. But I still spend so much time on intellectual endeavors within Mormonism. And on some level, he seems to be saying, look, it really doesn't matter whether the church is true or not. What matters is that you're living the gospel. And if the church helps you live the gospel, then stop spending so much emotional capital on trying to intellectually get to the bottom of it. And to some extent, I agree with him. But but I can only do that if somebody can formally come out and say, look, you know, if President Uchtdorf took the stand and said, look, you know, we're super flawed. We've made mistakes. We're probably making mistakes now. We'll probably make mistakes in the future. We think the church is true, but maybe it isn't. And, uh, you know, we're doing the best we can and, and we're trying to work all this stuff out and we're, you know, we need your help to help make some of these changes and we need your, your input to help us know where, where things aren't quite, you know, where they should be. And, uh, and let's just all do this together. And I would say hallelujah, amen. And, and I could then set the tension I do have in the midst of all this, set that aside and just live the gospel because the gospel, and again, I don't use gospel as in combined with church. To me, the gospel is the teachings of Jesus Christ in the hope that he gives us in the grace and mercy that he has offered us to help us change. That living the gospel, regardless of what church you're in, is important. And that Mormonism has become so messy that its members are so caught up in the intellectual rigors of it that we've lost track of being able to to dive in and to live it. The Savior instructed us to discover and ultimately live truth based on our own lived experience. He stated, my doctrine is not mine own, but his that sent me. If any man will do his will, he shall know of the doctrine, whether it be of God or whether I speak of myself. I marvel at how perfect this arrangement is. The only way we can deepen our knowledge and truth beyond mere philosophy is to be willing to live it. Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother's ultimate goal is to bring to pass the immortality and eternal life. of. They want us to become as they are by requiring us to believe, to choose, and to act. We are required to move beyond mere supposition to the work of become. But more than disinterested action is required. God is not interested in empty gestures. Mere curiosity or even scientific inquiry won't work. God requires a deep sincerity and real intent. President Nelson explained that real intent means that one really intends to follow the divine direction given. This is exactly what the Lord desires, not just our actions, but our hearts. As the scripture explains, we are required to follow the Son with the full purpose of heart acting no hypocrisy and no deception before God, but with real intent. 
Just as with logic and reason, acting alone has limitations and is insufficient to know ultimate truth. There are challenges we have to understand. For example, the law of justice demands that there be a fitting consequence for every thought, word, or deed. However, one reason we left God's presence for a time was the need to learn to act because we wanted to, not because we were compelled to act based on immediate and overwhelming consequences. The law of justice is real, but not immediate. People who do evil do not necessarily reap the reward of that evil immediately, any more than the people that do good reap the reward of the good immediately. But the results will always come. Because of this reality, it is not enough to simply check our pulse immediately after we act. We must examine more deeply the consequences of action. An immoral life may feel wonderful in the short run, but as even social science clearly attests, it is a very poor philosophy of life. True principles should bear good fruit. There's a reason why studies of active believing Latter-day Saints find they're almost always near the top by way of comparison with others. Whether those studies be about finances, health, education, happiness, pro-social behavior, family life, or pick your topic. This is also a, a logical fallacy. He talks about study indicators that point to Mormons being happier and healthier than the rest of the world, but this is also biased in in that we list the items that we rank first or near the top that are positive, and, and we love to mention those indicators, but there are plenty of negative ones well. Depression, use of drugs that treat depression, suicide, body image, some of those things that go on. Um, sexual, healthy sexuality. There, there are lots of things within Mormonism that are also problematic. And so I don't think it's fair to say that Mormons always rank at the top of all these positive studies. I think there's also studies that show that in other issues we rank near the bottom or at the top in a very bad way. And I, and I, and I think he kind of catches himself and acknowledges that in his next comment. The Latter-day Saints are far from perfect and we have to get back. I have. The research is overwhelmingly affirmative. To quote President Uchtdorf, the gospel works wonderfully. Another caveat to consider, neither we nor our choices are totally evil or totally good. There's usually some good mixed with some bad, both of which will bear fruit in our lives. We sometimes see a person doing something we know to be wrong and yet see that they aren't totally miserable and hence conclude that what they're doing must not really be wrong. It behooves us to learn to better understand cause and effect. Let's use the example of immorality again. Two people who have allowed immoral behavior to become part of their relationship may also treat each other kindly and do many other good things. Though the immoral behavior will have consequences, it does not mean that everything about their relationship is based in unrighteousness. Therefore, it would be simplistic and wrong to believe that their relationship can only produce misery. We will all reap the rewards, the fruits of both the good and the bad we do. Understanding this reality helps us more intelligently learn truth through lived experience. Revelation, the relational epistemology. As helpful as our best thinking and our lived experience is for knowing truth, neither of them is sufficient in and of themselves. God is not limited to our mortal sphere and therefore stands outside a man's ability to perfectly measure and investigate using nothing but secular means. Jacob taught, quote, Behold, great and marvelous are the works of the Lord. How unsearchable are the depths of the mysteries of him. And it is impossible that that man should find out all his ways. And no man knoweth of his ways, save it be revealed unto him. Wherefore, brethren and sistren, despise not the revelations of God. Bruce R. McConkie once stated, True religion is revealed religion. It is not a creation of man's devising. 
It comes from God. God stands revealed or he remains forever unknown. Any attempt to know the truth of God in his gospel while denying or denigrating the need and utility of revelation is doomed. A popular refrain in the blogosphere is that revelation cannot be trusted. It is pointed out that people of many faiths claim revelatory experiences and come to disparate, different conclusions. The question is asked, how can you trust a process that leads to such disagreement? There are a dozen reasons why convergence, meaning mutual agreement, will never be a valid means of judging the epistemological value of revelation. But suffice it to say that outside of the most concrete naturalistic scientific experiments, convergence is limited, not missing, but limited for all methods of knowing truth. You generally do not hear educated people denigrating the value of using our best thinking, be that historical or logical or scientific, because people reach different conclusions. The same reality exists for people, for, for the lived experience of people. People often draw different conclusions as a result of their action. And yet, when it comes to revelation, the argument is trumpeted that because people come to different conclusions, revelation cannot be trusted. This argument is sophistry, pure and simple. It is definitely true that our interpretations of revelation can and can vary and be flawed. Just as with our best thinking and our lived experience, our interpretation of revelation is not sufficient to carry the load alone. Not because of any inadequacy in God's revelation, but because of our less than perfect power to interpret. However, as we learn the principles which govern the receipt of revelation and combine revelation with our best thinking and our lived experience, we can have great confidence in our ability to come to a knowledge of truth. He's getting ready to wrap up here. And so we need to kind of just touch on some last points he makes and then, and then he'll conclude and I'll throw in a few words at the end. He finishes off by talking about this third leg of the stool, this idea of revelation. He talks about how those of us out in the blogger knackle as well as critics of the church, both in and out, and, and to some level I absolutely agree that I am a critic of the church while also being a member of the church and loving the good that it is. This idea that how that, that, that we as critics are saying you can't trust this revelation process. You can't trust that revelation will will lead you to truth. You know, how can you trust a process that leads to disagreement? And he validates that that disagreement occurs. His argument is that the revelation is perfect. It's our grasping it and interpreting it is where the the flaw comes in, where where we somehow mess it up. He seems to down the argument that revelation cannot be trusted based on the idea that revelation is personal. And while flawed, it is another component used to arrive at truth. And I agree with that. The The flaw in his argument is that he seems to be saying that while Jehovah Witnesses revelation is flawed, as, as that Jehovah Witness continues to use reason and lived experience and revelation, he will, if persistent and open, be brought closer to the restoration. If he disagrees with this, then the other side of the coin may be true as well. And when I say if he disagrees, I'm talking, I'm talking about Michael Goodman here. And in, in, in this talk, right, this idea that that if Michael were to disagree, like, hey, you know, no, no, I disagree, that, that Jehovah Witnesses experiencing the divine through revelation, study, inquiry, lived experience, they could be drawn closer into their own church. And the evangelical could be drawn closer into their church, and the Muslim could be drawn closer into his church. If if he disagrees that everything leads to Mormonism, 
And, and I'd have to expect him to do that. Otherwise I'm letting go of his argument already because there's already evidence that people are drawn further into their own faiths through investigation, inquiry, lived experience and revelation. So if he disagrees and says, you know what, I, not everything leads to Mormonism, then the other side of the coin is true as well, which means that, that as Mormons who believe deeply that they have the truth, that, that they may through reason and logic and lived experience and revelation, they may be encouraged to lose faith in the restoration and in the modern church and to find a stronger association with God or Christ elsewhere. And I think that's important, that when you recognize that Mormonism is one church among thousands that has truth claims and among hundreds and hundreds of thousands of church generally, that that to say that, you know, an exploration and inquiry into truth leads everyone towards the restoration, I think is arrogant. And I think it's a false assumption. And I think it, it, it diminishes the reality of stepping out of your own box and looking at the world with, without your rose-colored glasses and seeing what's really going on from church to church and recognize that we're just one church among many who makes claims and that many people are led into other faiths as they study and pray and seek and so I'm just looking for some validation that, that Mormonism doesn't have to be the end point. And I'm okay with that. Like I, that's, that's where I'm at presently. Although I'm also open to being taken somewhere else that we ought to recognize that, that everyone in this world who's seeking religious truth, they are drawn in a multitude of directions and not all roads lead to Rome. Again, I marvel at how perfect an arrangement this epistemological triad is. We were not merely intended to become philosophic sophisticates. Nor were we intended to simply be good people by living truth. We are here on earth to learn what we need to learn so that we can become what we are intended to become so that we can return to the presence of our Heavenly Father and our Heavenly Mother. We are meant to more fully develop those sacred relationships. Our theology clearly teaches us that we cannot be saved through our own unaided efforts. We are totally and completely dependent on God's grace and specifically the redeeming love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Is it any wonder that we're also dependent on God for our deepest understanding of truth? For this reason, I titled this section of my talk, Revelation, the Relational Epistemology. It is also the reason for the title of my complete address, The Way, The Truth. Jesus Christ is not simply the truth we are trying to ascertain. He is also the deepest, most poignant, most sure means of knowing that truth. He will reveal himself and all truth to us. True spirituality is simply another way of describing a close relationship with God. So unsurprisingly, many of the principles which lead to strong relationships apply to learning truth. Both require a choice. They are both acts of agency. No one can make the choice for you, not even God. Does a person choose to love their sweetheart or do they not? If not, they will never know the depth and exultant ecstasy which could be the result of that relationship. Similarly, God requires us to choose Him, to choose to believe, to choose to come to Him. He won't force us or overwhelm us with incontrovertible evidence. We choose whether to respond to His invitation or not. He has already chosen. It is now up to us. Similarly, you will never build a meaningful relationship on earth without a deep commitment, without sacrifice, without great effort, or without great love. Likewise, if we would know the truth of God, it will require that same type of commitment, that same sacrifice, that same heart-stretching effort 
and that same love. Those who refuse to give these things will never understand the deep, powerful love of a companion in this life. Likewise, those who refuse to give these things in their search of God will fail to know the truth that his love for them, of his love for them. We cannot passively or even passionately study and expect our best thinking will find God. We cannot simply go through the motions of being a Mormon and expect the power, joy, and might of the Holy Spirit to bring us near to God. If we would come unto God, we must ultimately bring all that we have, all that we are, and lay it on the altar. The good news is that all that God requires of us to start is to turn our softened hearts to Him, and He will draw near unto us. I've shared three ways of knowing truth. I've then showed how each is insufficient in and of itself. However, by combining all three methods, we stand on solid ground in our search for truth. For this reason, God has instructed us to use every method he has put at our disposal to know truth. Every branch of science has a version of this same process called triangulation to come to more firm conclusions. By using our best thinking, by choosing to act with real intent, and by seeking direct revelation from God, we can come to a humble yet firm conviction of the truth of all things. Our confidence can wax strong and our foundation of faith can be steadfast. Do not buy the argument that you cannot know truth. Do not fear to ask questions and to be a seeker. Do not fear that God or his gospel cannot stand up to scrutiny. I testify that God lives and that Jesus is the Christ. I testify that Joseph Smith was God's prophet. I testify that the Book of Mormon is true. I testify that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is led by Jesus Christ himself and that he directs his living prophets. And I testify that as we courageously use all means of knowing truth, we and our loved ones can know these things for ourselves. And I leave that testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me just wrap up. Again, I, I really did like the talk, and I enjoyed lots of parts of it. Why, why does his conclusion that the church is God's authorized institution seem to be the end conclusion we impose on others who truly utilize the process? And why do we use our words in a way that says if if not drawn to further testimony in the restoration and in the church, that 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 person is still missing something and that one who moves through the process sincerely will always have their testimony of the church strengthened. To me, that's circular reasoning and, and it's a flawed argument. And, I'm, and again, he's never said that directly, but in his testimony at the end, obviously he bears testimony the church is true. It just feels like constantly doubters are being told that the church is true and if you guys just, you know, use faith the right way, you'll end up back here. And and I'm just saying that doesn't validate the reality of, of the data, the reality of other people's religious experiences and other faiths. It just It's just like insisting the sky is red even if it's not. And, and it's frustrating to doubters. And again, I use doubters as a positive because these people are, they see the evidence on the wall. They see that it is unlikely that the church is what it claims to be. And they are clinging on to their doubts to stay in. It's my prayer that we will seek truth, that we will be open to changing our assumptions and expectations. It's my prayer that we also recognize in our life what things are good for us, what things are positive to us. And that we recognize that capital T truth and lowercase t truth are two very different things that we're chasing after. And sometimes you have to sacrifice one for the other. I bear testimony that Jesus' atonement is real. That grace and mercy are real. I often say in my testimony that I don't know if Jesus Christ is real. 
I don't know if the historical Jesus truly did, truly was resurrected, truly did make an atonement, but I know that his grace and mercy have truly changed me. I know the gospel's true, because as I've lived its principles, they've borne fruit in my life. I bear witness that the gospel is true, and I validate the pain and hurt that many of us are feeling right now. I validate that the intellectual inquiry leads many of us away from the literal truth claims of the church. I bear witness of the pain that many of you are feeling by some of the things the church is doing in the here and now. I bear testimony and validate that this is messy. It's my prayer that we can have faith to cling to that which is good, to have hope in things being better, and that ultimately there is a God and that we could live with him again is my hope as well. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.